0: I got down and I remember I was hyper ventilating. Just like whoo, whoo, bubbles are flying everywhere. I was just shooting, shooting. He swims over and he, he he like gets my air gauge. He looks at it and I'm like almost out of air like ten minutes. So he grabs me and he like you are safe, stop. We get to the surface. I'm breathing on his regulator now. And uh, <laughs> first thing he said is like you're not allowed to breathe. I'm like no, no. Let's swap tanks and get back down there.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rome Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive into adventure with purpose. The Rome Podcast is hosted by Mr. Corey Richards, National Geographic photographer, alpinist, filmmaker, and an extraordinary conversationalist. If you've been paying attention, you know this these days. And the reason he's not here with me at this moment doing the intro is that he's also training for Everest. Uh, next year. And he's doing that by getting into the CrossFit gym, getting extra jacked. You go, Corey. And uh, also me. My name is Chris Gerard, and I'm the founder of Rome. And I'm super happy to be here with you once again to share these stories and conversations. Hopefully, Corey and I are bringing you a different side of some of these folks, different than you've heard before, getting into it a little bit. And we are broadcasting from Boulder, Colorado, the little town in the shadow of the Flatirons that seems to be home to so many folks who have adventure and the outdoors in their DNA, myself and Corey included. We also happen to have the most private bookstores per capita of any town in the nation. Totally unrelated, but true fact. Today's guest is the extremely talented Mr. Andy Mann. And this was a super fun conversation. Andy has led such an interesting life. I mean, he is, I know this sounds trite, but he's a true Renaissance man. He's a chef, he's a musician. He's a Nat Geo photographer. He's an advocate for the ocean. He's a, he just started a massive farm slash garden. Um, he's a father, he's a husband. And he, he is one of the most unassuming but accomplished people that you've ever met. Uh, just just a good damn human through and through. Uh, he is a man, as you'll hear, with who had no plan. Um, and somehow that fact made all the difference in this remarkable multifaceted life that he's had with all the accolades that I mentioned. Uh, in addition to that, he's been nominated for Emmys. He's the founder of Three Strings Production Company, along with Keith Lodzinski. Uh, he is also a co-founder of the Sea uh, Legacy Collective and a senior fellow of that same organization. He's worked for all the big brands that you can imagine out there as a photographer. And uh, he is uh, another Boulder, Colorado guy. So we're super happy to have him on. And right before we get on with him, I'm going to bring a little bit of housekeeping to you. This episode is brought to you by Rome Academy. What is Rome Academy? Well, really excited to tell you about this. This is our new thing here at Rome. It is a way to help educate and activate what I believe to be so many people's ambitions and vision, and desire to get out and live a more adventurous life. No one regrets that, right? But how do you do it? How do you break through? How do you get out outside of your comfort zone? We have so many awesome conversations here about these subjects. We decided, hey, you know what? Let's help people actually move toward that light, if you will. Uh, Some of the most interesting people in the Rome universe are instructors. People like Jimmy Chin, who's teaching and has taught on the platform, if you go on there right now, adventure photography. We've got Ian Walsh on there, the big wave surfer, the legend himself is teaching how to get ready for a surf trip, how to pack, how to prepare your equipment. Dr. Kelly Starrett teaches how to prepare your body to avoid injury in a, I think it's an eight module lesson called like first aid for your body as an adventurer. We've got Sasha DeJulian, she's going to be teaching climbing technique. We have our own Corey Richards, who we just filmed in Adventure Storytelling, 13 module course that is amazing. Here's a little bit, just a snippet from that right here.
2: People always ask me, how do I tell a full visual story? And my answer is always another question. What is a story? Everything in our lives is shaped and informed by the stories that we tell. And there's a profound responsibility in storytelling because of that. I'm Corey Richards, and this is Rome Academy.
1: That's just a little taste of what the, the quality of these courses is and will be. We have Rebecca Rush lined up, who is going to be teaching mountain biking and bikepacking. And one that I'm extremely excited for myself as someone who struggles and is just a, just a terrible climber uh, is how to be a better rock climber with Conrad anchor, the master himself, the mentor of mentors, if you will, we'll be teaching that course. We've been in instructional design with him for weeks already. And that course is coming super soon. So if water, mountain, snow, wheeled sports, like cycling, mountain biking, camping, travel, trail based stuff like backpacking, or uh, even back backcountry cooking, um, or if you aspire to be a uh, an outdoor adventure filmmaker or photographer, look, we're going to have a class. If we don't already have one for you, we're going to have one for you soon. So just imagine this place that you can go. This is the vision. This place you can go, a one-stop shop, the world's best adventure club founded by the world's best adventurers. And, you know, if you're like me, you've probably spent a fair... T- fair share of your time going down Google and YouTube rabbit holes, looking for information on whatever it is that you're getting better at right now. Um, maybe that's mountain biking, maybe that's climbing, maybe that's surfing or skiing and you, you type it into Google and and you get the YouTube videos and look, you can learn anything on YouTube. We all know that, but there is a price to pay there and it's your time. And it's the effectiveness because You don't really know if you're getting an expert or not might have a lot of views and a lot of I've spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure this some of the things that I like to do out and you know Why not just get it from the best in the world and that's what we're building for you here. I mean on YouTube. What I find is, you know, all of a sudden I'm watching cat videos or this some ridiculous rope swing and I don't know how I got there and I forgot why why I got there in the first place. And it's really hard to learn that way. So we're getting the best instructors in the world, the the masters of adventure, and they're going to teach you from their experience. And, you know, these are the folks who have captured the imaginations of millions of people by being the absolute icons of the subjects that you want to know more about. And that's what this is, you know, for 13 bucks a month or just under that actually you get access to all of these amazing experiences. And Corey just said that as we were filming his class, you know, look, I've been making mistakes for 20 years so that you don't have to. And Conrad said the same thing, that this is the culmination of 30 years of my experience. These are the the tips and the things that I've learned so that you can be a better climber. In addition to, to that, if you become a member, you get access to all of the Rome originals, some of the amazing mini docs that we've made with these folks that are just about inspiration that get you fired up. You're gonna get access to special Rome events, member events, You're going to get access to uh, these interviews, in fact, on a live basis where you can actually ask Q and A's and we're going to have mentor sessions and then also uh, these amazing adventures that we're building right now that will be the activation for this education, meaning you can go ahead and sign up to go on a trip. Uh, and use some of these skills. Now, that is a little ways off right now as we are living in a time that uh, global travel and air travel is not necessarily recommended, but it is coming and it's up there. You can take a look at it now. So look, if you're paying attention to what we do and you like it and you appreciate the Rome founding members and all of these icons and what we've done over the last, I guess, three years we've been bringing this to you, this is like the next step in that This is where we bring not only inspiration in the form of the original content that we've been bringing to you, but we also bring you top quality adventure education that as a member, you are going to get the opportunity to really do a deep dive into this information and get out there and do it yourself. Okay, so look, that's my spiel. I'm really passionate about it. I hope you go check it out. It is it's been fun to build. It's been hard, but it's been amazing to build and it is, it's going to be something very special and already is. Wait till you see what we've got coming. Uh, it would be awesome to have you as a member and uh, go check it out. So look, without further delay, Mr. Andy Mann, thanks so much for listening. Subscribe and review if you like what we're doing here and that's all. See you next time. We are fortunate and excited to have Mr. Andy Mann on the Rome podcast today. We've been trying to get this guy from the beginning throwing lassos and cajoling him. And we're lucky enough we got him today out of the wilderness and uh, into his beautiful <laughs> studio there. Um, Thank you. And yeah, just really excited to have you on. A, a man of many talents, a renaissance man, if you will. Uh, he's, um, he's,
2: he's come up for air. That will make sense for more of you in a minute. Yes, <laughs> indeed. He's come up for air.
1: And as with many of our uh, amazing guests, Corey and Andy uh, know each other very well, and uh, that's going to make for some fun stories, I think. Um, And Andy and I have been uh, working together and acquainted for years now and uh, just have so much respect for the work that you do, Andy, uh, in every every part of your ecosystem, which is uh, now just recently, it looks like you've also become a farmer. Um, on yeah. top of musician, <laughs> photographer, explorer, uh, and so on. Um, and I hope we can get into that a little bit because I think there's a lot of people who are growing stuff right now. Um, yeah, totally. So I think that's really cool. But
2: uh, Corey, your history with Andy's long. Um, it, it's, it's very long. I, I mean, like Andy and I go way back. I would call Andy a homesteader at this point. Like That's this it. is beyond, this is like a whole collection of things. He's got like a commune that he's, you know, that he started out at Niwat and it's pretty amazing. Have you ever been out there, CJ? I haven't. I've, I've just seen the, uh, I've seen
1: the, you know, gathering photos and, and what, what you've been doing recently, the little glimpses, but, uh, it yeah. looks like quite a, quite a spot
2: it's quite it's a scene man he's got to be i mean andy you live in a barn an old renovated barn that when you told me what was happening this is years ago Andy's like i'm gonna i'm gonna move into this barn in and i was like sounds like a really bad idea but cool man you know you're like trying to be excited for your buddy and uh (laughs) you know how that is when your buddy's like when your friend's dating somebody you just know is wrong and you have to be really supportive well that was what the barn was but he totally, you totally like, you proved me very wrong. I mean, this, this whole sort of ecosystem that you've created out there is really, really beautiful. But before, before we get to parenting, music, uh, uh, being deep underwater with big sea creatures, advocacy, policy, um, you know, just sort of this, this I mean, you've, you've expanded so much. I want to back up. I want to ask you um, who you are. Who is Andy Mann? Introduce yourself. Oh my gosh,
0: who am I? I mean, I am really just like, kind of a country boy from rural Virginia. (laughs) That's like really tried to just do what I love for a living and find purpose within that particular journey. And so now it's like, gosh, I've like dipped my toes in so many different things now that are all like really ingrained in me. And so I try to be all of those things, you know, but uh, I'm a photographer and I'm a filmmaker and I'm an ocean conservationist. Uh, I'm a musician, I'm a homesteader, I'm a father, um, all these things in this big juggling act that I do. But, uh, and I'm happy and I'm healthy,
2: and, and I'm blessed. So right off the bat, you're like, I'm just grateful, bro, <laughs> I'm <laughs> Which just is good. Yeah. But so you came to this really oddly, I mean, you started, well, first of all, at one point you were, you were like, a, you were a chef or you were a sous chef, yeah. right? Like you were working in yeah. the restaurant industry and this is years ago. Yeah, so
0: I uh, started working in kitchens when I was 14. And um, started in the dish room and then, you know, started getting on the line and through the years, just, my stepdad was a a chef. So I sort of like had um, my chops early on, but it was just a way for me to like, you know, be like free in so many ways, like, you know, I never really uh, considered like photography or anything until I moved. To Boulder, I moved to Boulder in two
2: thousand three. Why uh, Boulder? What, sorry, what, what, Boulder? why did you choose Boulder?
0: I had an older half brother that lived in Denver named Taylor. And okay. the summer before in two thousand two, I'd flown out here and gone on a backpacking trip for like three days. And I came out here, and it just blew my mind. I mean, you know, it was my first time out west. It I sort of didn't for me, and in and, the and morning, you know, like three of my roommates at the time, we had four dogs, we were a mess. And uh, my car made it as far as Denver, broke down. So I hopped in like the U-Haul and just like made it all the way here. Um, And we landed in Denver and slept on my four guys and three dogs sleeping on my brother's couch until finally we had to take the U-Haul back which had all our stuff in it so we made the decision without ever seeing Boulder to drive the U-Haul to Boulder and get a storage unit here. Uh, that way our stuff was we took the U-Haul back came found a place to live and I started working at this uh, famous college burger joint called The Sink flipping burgers and one one of the waiters this good guy's name was Tommy he said hey, do you want to go climbing? I said, sure, and it took me up the Flagstaff Mountain, and we got on the monkey traverse in my tennis shoes, and it just clicked, like, immediately. Like, this, my stubbornness um, and, like, high-intensity focus just all, like, at once made sense. And I just understood, like, how, like, climbing, um would it, like, it's hard to explain that feeling of like, when you, when you like doing something that's like flipping a switch like internally for you. And uh, that's it, that was it. And then I started rock climbing and that was sort of the beginning of my journey. Do you,
2: do you think that this is just a random question? I just I thought I totally sort of like a shower thought I just had, do you think that people take to climbing somewhat instinctively because um, be- because of sort of our primate like underpinning? I mean, like we all yeah. climb trees as kids and so it's just natural. I mean, do you think that that is, I, I don't know. That just occurred yeah. to me right now.
0: What it does is it, it sort of takes your field of view and just narrows it
2: mm-hmm.
0: way down acutely. And you, be, you, you interact with the outdoors um, in a way that I've never been able to do it. Um, It takes such intensity and focus and calculation. And it's the mental aspect of the sport that I love the most, for sure. Um, You know, bouldering is like, it is a discipline. And some consider like bouldering to be like the truest, freest aspect of climbing because you don't have a rope. Uh, You don't have all the gear, it's just movement. And it's not, you know, it's like, bouldering was sort of put on the map by John Gill, math professor in Southern Colorado in the 60s. And and, um, he saw bouldering more as um, like gymnastics than than a physical pursuit. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, finding the most, the easiest way up was finding the most difficult way up.
2: Um, Is that? I mean, is that the through line? I look at your life and and we're going to get, for for the people who are listening, we're going to get into all of these topics, but climbing was how you started. Uh, um, Music, you've always been a musician um, and photography. Is there sort of that narrow focus, that acute focus that you're talking about? It seems like all of those things share that component. Is that, is that? A, a sort of an appropriate through line that I'm painting or am I making that up? It is for sure.
0: Yeah, it's like whatever I can sort of really jump into um, that takes me away from the rest of the world and just gives me that focus is hmm. for some of the things that initially like attract me to the aspects of my
1: life. You said something at the start there, Andy, that was, you know, a, just trying to do the things that I love and I think that's an interesting through line also, which is, I mean, you're attracted to these things, they have this intensity, but you just mentioned this moment that it a switch flip for you for climbing. You didn't go out looking for climbing. It sort of, it sounded like it almost found you in a way, but as soon as that happened, you knew that you needed to pursue that. Do you find that with all these other things as as Corey ran through you're this renaissance man truly like you have all these different backgrounds the that the the switch flipped for all of those things whether it's photography or you know what you're doing with your your farm garden or you know the advocacy and you know that that you have this moment where you're like this is you know I'm, I'm going for this like you know it in your heart you don't have to intellectualize it i'm just curious on that because some you know a lot of people succeed in that they have this very they say i want to be a climber because they see something and then they become it they don't just have yeah. this m- sort of enlightenment moment almost yeah it's interesting
0: i think you know not ever having a plan in life um you know always living within my means not having much overhead um, just sort of allowed me to be free, you know. At a time uh, when, like, a lot of people my age were like looking at their future and financial security, like raising a family and stuff. None of that really was on my radar until I was able to sort of explore a lot of these things that I truly love to do. Um, and I look back and I think, gosh, that was—I was really lucky to be able to have that flexibility, you know, like. To be able to shift careers so many times um, would be really hard to do now. You know that I have a mortgage and have children and things like that. So, um, yeah, I was just attracted to the journeys. Like, I never thought like I never had like a goal in mind other than like be immersed in this thing for as long as it makes me happy.
2: How did you? Um, I mean, speaking of being happy and being immersed in that, when did the transition go from climbing into photographing climbing? And why did that happen? Yeah, that happened
0: I started climbing in 2003. And then um, that's all I wanted to do was climb. I was working in the kitchens, climbing during the day. That schedule worked out great for me. Um, And then I remember in 2005 in Waco Tanks, Um, I showed up, and Keith Watzinski showed up, and it was the first time I had met him, you know, by the campfire, and he just has an infectious energy, that guy, and went out the next day and started shooting photos. I was the climber, and he was the photographer, and he had all these, you know, beautiful, big lights, He had sort of taken off-camera lighting from, like, from the skateboarding world and brought it out to the boulders of Waco. I just remember living in the back of his camera after every shot, and, like, so he started to like refine the art of like what bouldering sort of looked like in my head, which was like this beautiful art form. And he was capturing that. And then um, I tagged along with him uh, to Rockland, South Africa in 2006 for a for summer. And uh, he just really took me under his wing. And I started to see that like, oh, well, you know, with, I could just learn photography and hopefully be able to capture the sport and be able to do it longer you know and so uh I remember working I was in the kitchen this is 2006 um, and it, I was prepping it was like a big Friday I remember we were totally booked and uh I got a call in the kitchen uh and the chef was, was upset hey, Andy tell you got a phone call and I'm you know I'm chopping up cucumbers whatever I'm doing and I go in there and I take the phone call and it's uh, it's this lady, I uh, forget her name, I think it was Susan or something, but she worked at Black Diamond. Was it, was it Sandra? No, it was, maybe it was before Sandra, but she said, uh, you know, Andy, you're really hard to get hold of, I never a cell phone or anything. She said, um, we got a photo we wanna, we wanna purchase for you. And she started using a bunch of words like I didn't understand about licensing and perpetuities and rates and all these things. And so I called Keith on the other, other kitchen phone. I had two phones going, I oh, called Keith, I said, Keith, man. I had a phone call if it's, it's Susan from Black Diamond. I think I'm selling a photo, but I don't know. Uh, oh yeah, so Susan had asked me for the high res and I didn't even know what that was. And so I told Keith, I said, man, she's asking for high res. What is that? He's like, calm down. Uh, you know, she needs, she probably has like a compressed version of the image she wants to publish, she needs the high resolution, raw files so she can put it in a catalog, whatever. Calm down. You're fine, and then I remember Keith said, "Hey, you didn't take it with that little two megapixel Radio Shack camera, did you? Because that's what I had in South Africa." Uh, which, by the way, when I bought it was my first camera. Two megapixels is this big. Didn't even have a display screen. Like, get off offload and look at the computer to see what you shot. And I remember the guy at the Radio Shack he told me that you know that was two million pixels, and I was like, I'll "Do the job." anyway, he was like, you didn't take it with that, did you? I said, I did. So then I picked up the phone and I said, Susan, that is the high res. It was like 100K. (laughs) She's like, that's the high res. I'm like, that's it. And she was like, ah, you know, we can't can't purchase this photo. We can't even print it. Um, But she said something super important to me. She was like, you know, you have a good eye. Like, if you're going to travel around the world and photograph these climbers, like do yourself a favor and get a camera with like 10 megapixels or something. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then before she hung up the phone, I said, Susan, wait, 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 how much are you gonna pay me? And she rattled off more terms that like, I didn't understand about the time, but she said $600. And right then it was like, that was two weeks of work in the kitchen for me. And I was like, yeah. all right. I, so, I hung up the phone i got through that friday and then i told my boss when i was leaving that i was putting in my two weeks notice and i knew i only had to sell like one photograph a month um, to to sustain like gas and food and sleep in the dirt with my friends 600 bucks
2: 600 bucks so you were you were your plan in its entirety was to live on seven thousand dollars a year yeah yeah. that that was
1: (laughs) it's so interesting though right corey because we've had this both jimmy chin and chase jarvis in their own way have essentially the exact same story of taking a photo because they were in this place at this moment because they were pursuing something that they loved which was skiing and climbing in their respective cases and then some editor saying yeah, I'll pay you 500 bucks for that. And then being like 500 bucks, like I could live on it for months on that, you know? And then that becoming these amazing careers that you have all had, you know, based on, you know, being in the right place at the right time to a certain degree, because you were doing something that you really loved, which is so, so cool. The, the commonality between the, the three of you.
0: And then, so I was hacking it, like selling a photo a month at the planning magazine or something. And then I was ended up, getting off the road at some point. And that's when Corey and I moved into a house together in Boulder um, that they've long since torn down and built seven mansion over. But uh, you know, we were both just basically looking to get off the road. We've been just sort of like dirtbagging and shooting photos for so many years that there's some exhaustion. And I remember we meeting at a bar, you know, like one in the morning, walking outside, just getting on our bikes and being like, should we live together? Like yeah, let's do it, and we ended up doing it. And then right after that, I remember selling so many photos to Climbing Magazine at the time that they they wanted to put me on a retainer. Uh, and I don't know what the retainer was or even meant. And I remember telling Corey, I said, man, Climbing Magazine wants to put me on a like a retainer. Corey's like, don't do it. He's <laughs> like, they're just gonna take advantage of you. You're gonna undercut like all our value. And I, but I took it anyway, and they, <laughs> they gave me, they gave me $500 a month for like unlimited usage for like all my images,
1: but actually
0: it's magazine. This wasn't even finding. Magazine. This was like the seaside of finding magazines at the time. But so $500 a month. And I was like, wow, that's something you can write home. about. I could tell mom about that, you know? And, uh, But what had happened was at the same time, like the print editorial industry was crashing. Everyone was advertising online. And I remember at some point, like in the first year, the magazine itself had like a thousand dollars to put together an entire issue to pay all its contributors and everything. And I think the editor in chief was like, every issue that came, they were like, well, Andy's in our pocket, like what's he doing? So I was getting like a cover and a feature literally every month. I mean, they were working me. I was shooting 30 days a month. Like, I was making 500 bucks, you know. But what happened was I was getting my work out there like crazy. I mean, even like all the advertisers in the magazine, I started to work for it and that's when I started to do the sort of commercial stuff. Um, But then that's sort of when Corey and I were still living together, that's when uh, Keith and Corey and I started three streams production to started focusing on uh, like motion storytelling uh, as part of packages that we were doing and delivering to clients. Well,
2: it's funny because the way I remember it was we were outside like, so we're, you know, I came to town in 2008 or something. Mm-hmm. I was working with another one of our friends named Renan Osturk. I was out at the bars because I was still drinking like a fish and yeah. continue to drink for another decade after that. Um, really that. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, you know, we were, I think we were outside a, a bar called Tahona and it was, it was, it was late. And we were both in this, in this place of like, well, you know, we, we were both a little road wary, um, not really understanding sort of the, the, the great privilege that we had to be able to travel like we were at the time and, and sort of that freedom that, it, that, it, that it had. And, I bumped into you, Andy. And I said, you know, what's going on? And you're like, ah, I broke up with my girlfriend and, and and I think I was single at the time too. So it just, you know, it was sort of like, well, let's pool all of our meager resources and, and buy, you know, and get into a little hovel somewhere. I just remember those being actually really, uh, like a really good year for you and for me because we were both sort of, you know, in our own ways blowing up at the time. Um, and I don't think, I think, That was before, yeah, it was before I had gone to Gasher Room 2. It was before National Geographic. It was before any of that. Uh, And I just remember sitting in the the living room being very, um, you know, hopeful, idealistic, excited about sort of the avenues that we could pursue, but also, I think, really limited in our scope of understanding what this career could actually be. And so it's interesting to me to look back on those days when climbing, as you said, was everything climbing was all we did climbing was all that was that was part and parcel with our identity. Um, You know, it wasn't as much that we were photographers as much as we were, you know, we were climbers who had cameras and, um, and now fast forward, uh, you are you're you're literally negotiating policy with people around marine conservation. Um, When did you I mean, I I kind of know the answer to this, but when did you start to make that shift from this sort of terrestrial pursuit, which is climbing, into yeah. uh, into into underwater work? I mean, how did that happen for you?
0: Yeah, it happens um, really clearly. Like, I think my life is defined by these intersectional moments um, that are like awakenings for me in so many ways, and and. Um, Um, That was like when we were living together, or right after we sort of moved out, we're still shooting some planning stuff. You started working for the Geographic uh, a lot more. Uh, That was kind of your mainstay at that point. And I think I was feeling a little lost, um, finding purpose in my work, you know. And uh, and Corey, you got an assignment to go to Franz Josef Land, Russia, a 45 day expedition to explore this Russian archipelago of 190 islands basically uh, undocumented, unexplored place um, that we had managed to get visas for. And and you brought me in as an assistant to shoot video and also assist your photo assignment. And that was an eye-opening trip in so many different ways because I was like, um, just on the front lines of conservation and exploration. It just, you know, coming back from that trip, I remember like, um, you know, after we got back, you know, all our we delivered everything, edited some films, delivered, did a magazine article, and shortly after that, um, Russia declared Franz Joseph Land as a the largest Arctic National Park on the planet. And uh in our group received what's called the Crystal Compass Award from the Royal Geographic Society for storytelling efforts we did there. And it, it just like opened up this whole new world of, like, the power of, of camera, of, of, of digital storytelling. Um, and I remember coming back from that trip and, like, um, you know, just sleeping on couches and, like, read, like, the thought of going back to the desert and, like, crushing PBRs with my friends just didn't seem that fun anymore. And I didn't shoot for a while, for, like, a month I didn't even pick up a camera, um, and, that, and then I got a call after that from uh, a friend of ours named Jess Cramp, who's a National Geographic explorer. Um, and she was running an expedition to Fiji uh, through a foundation called the Weight Foundation uh, to study sharks. And uh, she called me and she said, Andy, at this expedition uh, coming, You know, there's room for one person on the boat, there's one bunk, Um, you know, You're obviously good at like suffering on long trips with not much space. Like you don't need a lot of people on your team. You're a good storyteller. um, And that's what we need. She said, I'm not going to tell the Navy SEAL dive safety officer on the expedition that you're not dive certified. She said, you basically have one week to get dive certified and meet me at the port of Fiji. Uh, It'll be our secret. But she said, you know what she said? She said, you know. You're good at telling stories. Most ocean conservation stories are topside stories anyway. And the underwater stuff's the B-roll. So I did. I, I, I got uh, certified in a heated pool in Boulder, Colorado, called Oceans First. And I, and I flew out to Fiji, and I got on the boat. And uh, within like, on the first day, on first, I hadn't done my open water dive yet. Um, so the first dive we did in
2: Fiji was to like 150 feet with like 50 bull sharks. I borrowed for so his camera for this. You, you, you hadn't done an open water dive before you I, did this? Done, it's my first open water dive. Your first open water dive was to 150 feet. With 50 bull sharks. With bull sharks. With bull <laughs> sharks. So this all sounds very safe, Andy. This sounds well There's thought a new out. It's standard. This I think
1: that's where everyone should start. So, yeah. I remember mean,
0: we're, we're going out there
1: diving in. I
0: remember, the dive guy like, looked at me. I was with this foundation, you know, and all these scientists. And I'd already been like spraying about, you know, working on a Nat Geo assignment with Corey and stuff. I had this. I had Corey's underwater housing at the time that he had bought for Franz Josef And He said, Oh, you're the big Nat Geo photographer guy. So when we go down, you want to be like with the sharks, right? Like, not with like the scientists and the other divers which are, like, lined up behind, like, a a rock wall that they had built down there. Um, So he just plops me right in the middle of these 50 giant bull sharks, the biggest bull sharks in the world. And, like, you should normally get, like, 45 minutes on, like, a tank of air. And I got down, and I remember I was hyperventilating, just like, bubbles are flying everywhere. And I remember that his name's Joe LaCore, that dive safety officer. I think he noticed, like, something was up with me. I was just shooting, shooting. He swims over and he, he like gets my air gauge. He looks at it and I'm like, almost out of air. after like 10 minutes. I put he starts poking at me and I turn around and he's like, does this. And I'm like, I know it's crazy, we're gonna die. This is amazing. <laughs> I didn't know the hand symbols, but this means like, you're out, you're out of air. So he grabs me and we like, we do our safety and stop. We get to the surface. I'm breathing on his regulator now, like I'm out of here. 15 minutes into the dive. And uh, <laughs> first thing he said is like, you're not a diver, are you? I'm like, no, no, let's swap tanks and get back <laughs> down there. I think he he, he likes my bravado and because uh, we had 30 more days on the boat together. So, um, but he ended up so like, really teaching me how to dive over the next few years. I did a lot of expeditions with him, but
2: that was my first open water dive. So by the, by the end of it, <laughs> By the end of it, did he know that you would come without a dive cert? Yeah, yeah, right away. I spilled my,
0: <laughs> my beans like right away after he was swapping my second tank. So
2: this seems uh, like this is like a theme with you, though. Like in life, I, I mean, you end up, and and it's one of the things I love most about you is you you are able to assimilate. Like you put yourself in these positions with with a lot of um, high consequence at times, and you just sort of operate normally you know you're like it's it's very um one of the things that i remember about you know the time that we did spend together on expedition and on assignment and and certainly living together you're pretty even keeled and i i wonder if there's i mean are, are you aware of how you do that or or is it just your nature i think it's just my nature i, I people accuse me of this
0: all the time it's not an accusation but um, yeah, I just it's just all seems right and normal sometimes in high stressful situations. I just feel like you're I feel like I'm in the right spot and I'm excited. To do, do to, to you, be there and like I feel like it's a I don't know what it is.
2: Does your does you do you notice that you get calmer when it's in high stress situations? I mean it, obviously you're surrounded by bull sharks, you're diving for the first time, you're gonna be breathing hard, but do you feel yeah. like you you thrive in those sort of chaotic moments where or, or is that not quite right either?
0: It is, I, do, I definitely thrive. I mean, I'm like, I'm a cautious, you know, risk manager, but um, I definitely come alive and thrive and then start to like really yearn for those moments again and again and again and again, you know, and as an artist too, it's like that, when that canvas sort of comes about, like I, I realize how rare and exciting moments like that are. Um, Just to have access to to moments in life that um, just seems so rare and so dreamlike that um, I'm able to sort of just check into them and just start to go to work in a lot of ways. And so, um, yeah, the more I'm realizing now that I'm sort of quarantined and grounded, how much those moments are like a part of who i am now that i you know I'm not i mean being at home is exciting but it's not as exciting as swimming with sharks
2: yeah i mean how have you how have you managed that i mean that's a good you know for people who are who are listening later on you know we're still sort of on the tail end well i don't even think we're on the tail end of covid we we are in that moment right now where things have opened up and people are um, out and about and the cases are rising uh, like catastrophically all over the country. So I think we're we're in a, a moment in between. How, is, how has quarantine been for you? I mean, you know, the past few years you've spent a, a huge amount of time on the road and, and specifically under the water. Um, how have you found being home, especially with two you know young kids? Um, because cause that's the other part of this. In this in during this story, you went you went and got married to a really great woman, and have managed to have two children. So, I mean, how how are you managing that time? You don't have that same amount of stimulus. What does it fe- what does it feel like? How are you filling your time?
0: Yeah, I mean, good. Like I, it came at a time for me. You know traveling 200 days a year for like a decade or something like that um and th- you know my son was like six months old or something i turned 40 the day i was quarantined so march 14th i turned 40 we had my wife and i the babysitter lined up and dinner reservations at a nice restaurant to celebrate and woke up that morning and it was like that time where it was like oh where states are starting to shut down like we need to just we need to self-quarantine like we need to cancel our reservation send the babysitter home and start looking at you know an infinite amount of time that will be a lot different for me i was on speaking tour with national geographic live um all those dates started to cancel and drop off all my expeditions fell apart Um, and then i just started to like really kind of enjoy that part of life that was missing for me for a long time, especially like when Joseph being my daughter, that first year of her life was a big year for me traveling. Um, So knowing Eli was sort of that same age that it gave me a chance to really slow down um, and look at what would be like a more balanced life at home, uh, which is something like my family and I have always sort of dreamed of in a lot of ways. Um, but that's when I took toward to sort of building this homestead and garden and all these cool things. Um, because physically and creatively, it was like an output for me, like, mm. you know, on my property. So, um, but, you know, it was challenging for sure. Finding a way to work, you know, and, which just turned to Zoom meetings and things like that. But just being at home was, was at first like a little challenging because like I'm, I'm like, I'm used to having like a lot of time to myself. And I'm like a person that really likes to be alone um, and really likes to be on the move. So when this, both those things are taken away from me, um, I mean, it was beautiful and it was just like, you know, it's just like sort of settling in and letting things be okay. You know, so I think it was a, you know, it still is a very heightened, strange, um, time, like wrought with anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Um, and I felt a lot of the opposite of that in an exercise to um, just wake up every day and be grateful to be at home with my family and that the sun was coming up and that things were going to slow down for me. Um, and so now I'm sort of in the swing of it, you know?
2: Does, did you, so I want to, I want to jump back a little bit. How did because I think one of the things that people that know of you might not know about you, and certainly for people that are listening, I'd love to put it in the show notes too. Um, I mean, your your music, you're, you're a fabulous musician. Um, really, really talented. When did that start for you? And uh, I mean, and, and, and have you reconnected with that during this time period? Has that been an outlet for you or? It was
0: really coming back. Um- you know, I grew up playing guitar and writing songs and stuff, mostly in like the folk, bluegrass, the really and singer-songwriter stuff. Um, but, I, and so in my little town of Niwot, uh over the winter I started a performing art series called Willowdale Live, um, which is at this little local Grange Center, historic building like a block from my house. And and, uh, and I just wanted to bring really good storytelling and. And um, songwriting to the town um, and so I started really just being more involved with music a lot over the winter and a good friend of mine named Nick Dunbar who I started this concert series with him and I started writing little tunes and performing we played a couple of shows at some festivals right before this all came, came down um, so it was nice to sort of get back to the roots of that and I I have had the chance now that I'm home to like delve a little more into like that that art of of songwriting and making music that just brings me so much joy.
2: Do do you um you talk about that and and when we lived together, um you know I'd come home you 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 played a lot of guitar. You've now sort of branched off and um you know even the other day we were working on. Uh, something with a, with a musician together named Gregory Allen Um do you see music as being a larger part of your future or is it just something that I'm always baffled that you're so talented and yet that's not your that's not your main trajectory is that something that you'd, you'd pursue or is it just not something are you just all in on, on storytelling and, and photography and, and also policy
0: more you know, it's almost like, I mean, music, songwriting, and it's so special to me, but and to be able to like tell the stories of other songwriters, like, you know, working a lot with Gregory Alan Isaacoff and, and the band Fish, and a lot of other musicians. Um, it's such a sacred space. It's like holy ground for me that I don't, I, I, it's like eating dessert. You know, if I was to really go in, I'd be eating dessert like three meals a day and I'd get sick and tired of it. And I, I don't want to ever approach that spot. So I do like one project a year with like a musician that I really admire. Um, and I don't think I'll, I would love to just keep that pace. Like do one thing a year, but not really delve in it too much. Uh, just in the hopes that like, you know, it'll stay special.
2: So, what? i mean that's that's interesting because on the idea of staying special um i understand your the idea that if you pursue something it can become something that you you love your passion if you pursue it to the point of work oftentimes it it becomes less special do you um well recently you've you've started to make the shift towards policy and advocacy with with on a government level uh, around ocean and marine conservation I want you to talk a little bit about that because I feel like you've you've made this sort of dramatic leap from being under the water um, telling you know these special stories to to and sort of intimate stories of an ecosystem to leaping out of the water into a wildly different environment where now you have to speak on behalf of these ecosystems as as a policymaker. What does that look like, and how did how did that happen?
0: I mean, it is really interesting, and in so many ways. Like, I, you know, that first trip we did to Fiji. Um, you know, it's like a thirty day expedition. We came back to port, and there was uh, a party on board. This is part of the plan of the whole expedition. We boarded boarded like the... Minister of Fisheries and Environment in Fiji um, to present our findings, and you know the foundation wanted me to edit a film together. So I was doing it as we were running the port, um, and then they wanted me to you know put together a slideshow and then do an opening like little keynote to introduce the scientists. And right away, I learned that um, you know it's hard to really get people to care about the ocean. Um, with data and information and the science and stuff like you really have to hit them like here before you hit them here um, and then that so that was that made a lot of sense to me that like you know that there was a huge responsibility to be able to sort of open the heart and the minds and the ears of these these ministers uh, before they were given like the true data. For which to inform a policy that we hope to make, and I realized that, like, you know, that's when I realized that, you know, video is is a really great way to to um, to to communicate emotion. It's kind. Of, it's a really poor way to communicate information. Um, so what I really wanted to do was like just show them something beautiful and make them so proud of what they had that the science can then come behind it um, and the policies sort of come in behind that. And that's sort of how it's worked in a lot of ways. Now it's like, you know, I'll speak at a big United Nations meeting or a big meeting of the parties or an Antarctica treaty consultation or all these things. And my job is just to open people's hearts, um, to, to look at, to just show them and make them proud of, of the ocean that they have in their own waters. And if I've done my job right, like. The sort of the policy advisors and the data and the management plans can sort of tuck in behind that, and that you will sort of won over you know that person you need to win over in the first few minutes um and then that's how sort of media and, and science really really go together
2: so it's it's kind of like the cart and the horse i mean the the media are yeah, the horses pulling the the cart, which is where all the cargo is that's where all the the life and the information is, but you need that you know without the horses, the cart doesn't move, so to speak. but do you think that like your i mean back to this idea of of a sacred space and not wanting you know to impact something that you hold so sacred mm-hmm. um, has your work in policy and your work in activism and advocacy? impacted your passion for um for photography i mean and i'm not looking for a bad answer i'm just curious like i certainly know that when i started to make climbing a job uh i i I didn't love it as much and i'm just curious if you've had that experience or no i
0: have i mean if i've just done less of it like still i really want to just be in the water with the animals photographing, but now it's such a it's like you know a ten thousandth of my job is like shooting underwater and doing It's more like strategy um, and influence and, and um, using the power of storytelling to influence the right people to make the right changes. It's very strategic, and there's and you know it takes so many different organizations and so many different scientists to sort of find that one tipping point and then all sort of tuck in behind it and go to work. And so it's like, can be years of work, you know, to try to get five minutes at the right time with the right person that sort of tips that scale behind closed doors. Uh, And so, so much of the work I've done over the last even five years, like, has been made for closed meetings with policymakers. Um, never even sees the light of day, really, other than, like, a few images on my Instagram account, but, um, but it just feels like that is my purpose, like, that is the evolution of, like, a, a storyteller. That's, like, if you can find, if you know how to strike someone's emotional cords and sort of, um, open their eyes and steer them in, into that direction, um, it, it becomes um your duty in a lot of ways to to do that you know like I love inspiring people for sure I love to get people to care about the ideals I love people to care about sharks and whales and corals and stuff but um you know there's instances where if I can get one person to care about it that person can like protect their ocean and then that's more important um, so i have just, it's not as glamorous, it's not quite as fun. Um, it's definitely not a limelight thing. No one hardly understands or knows of a lot of that work that I do, but it brings me a lot of um, satisfaction and joy knowing that like this place that's given me such great experiences and opportunities um, it, that I can give back in so many different ways.
2: One of the ways that I've always thought that you can give back is also by debunking some myths, yeah. uh, and you and you do that sometimes, especially on your social p- platforms and whatnot. But you you did a lot of years where you were in like high, you know, very close proximity to sharks. I mean, that was your sort of inflection point when you started photographing sharks. That was when you, I, I, you know, I've heard you describe it as the moment when you really understood your purpose and calling. Um, in photography and storytelling specifically, a lot of people think that swimming with sharks, swimming with tiger sharks, bull sharks, great white sharks is absolutely batshit crazy. And I am actually one of those people. I want to like brush it off and be like, ah, no, it's it's cool. But in my heart of hearts, I'm like, that's fucking crazy. So can you, I want you to talk a little bit about that because your experience is such that I think it would lend a lot of clarity for people that you know these are not big, scary, predatory animals in the way that they've been perceived, and there's and there's tremendous value in protecting them. But how do we how do we move beyond this idea of jaws into the idea of like uh, really ecosystem stewards that apex predators are?
0: Yeah, I mean sharks are you know they're so important to the balance of the ecosystem, green ecosystems. And, you know, a lot of it's just being in the water. I mean, people are afraid of what they don't know. and You know, they're influenced by movies like Jaws. Um, but, you know, any person that has ever had fear of sharks that I've gotten in the water and taken diving with sharks for the first time. You know, when we get out of the water, they just are so, so excited. Like, excitement is what they feel. Um, and it's a calming thing. Like, when you're in underwater with sharks, like, you're, you're more aware of your surroundings. You're more aware of like, um, just like what is going on around you. And sharks are very slow, thoughtful. Like, you know, sharks are racing around. They're like kind of slow and stony and they swim around and- um,
2: They're stony. Nice, no, nice, stony version. sharks.
0: <laughs> I sharks um, in particular, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just, excitement like you can just see you can read that animal and, and start to know that like it's not like a a mindless killing machine you know it's like an intelligent animal that's like definitely not here to eat me. and just the power and the beauty and the grace of these things like just to see a live shark in the water so amazing and so transforming that like you become a steward and an advocate for shark conservation like right? within spending like a you know a day in the water
2: with him just that
0: truly amazing
2: of an animal. Have have you ever felt, though, I mean, in your in all of your work, in in all of this underwater conservation work, have you ever felt at risk by any sort of uh, like Uh in any way, really? Yeah, sometimes
0: a little bit. I mean, most of it's like, um, you know, but I'm also like I feel like over, I'm like kind of a safe guy. So like if if something doesn't feel right, like I'll get out of the water. Like if the shark's behavior changes. and Like you can see a shift in a behavior of an animal if you're spending hours and hours. Like maybe it's just like moving a little quicker. Maybe it's, I just get out of the water. So I feel like, you know, I've sort of avoided any confrontations that would be dangerous by just staying a step ahead. I mean, I I refer to this sort of analogy sometimes because it makes sense to me about sharks being like dogs, only in the way that like you can sort of perceive them. Like for instance, like if you're walking down the sidewalk and someone has a dog on a leash on the same side of the road and they're walking towards you, you make the decision whether to cross the road to the other side and continue walking, or walk past the dog. Or sometimes you can stop and pet the dog. And you make that decision based on like, within seconds of just seeing that animal. It could be the species, it could be like, oh, it looks happy, it looks bad. It's, or it's just like, you're uncertain. So there's something about the intuition there with that animal that makes you cross the road, or cross right by the animal. And that's, I feel like, how I interact with other animals, in the world. like you can sort of, And at least somehow, indescribably, tell if
1: if you're safe or not. But you have to have some experience. I mean, the first, your first open water dive with 50 bull sharks, were you perceiving that or were you just hyperventilating?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of it's like knowing that, like, you know, the shark scientists that swim with sharks for their whole careers and there's there's guided shark diving tours and like just that bit of information that I was like oh people die with sharks every single day right. like my first hour with sharks like it would be extremely rare if I needed a bit um based on just the data
2: of people that right, I bit. right.
1: so um so i sort it's of it's really about fear i mean to a degree right andy and that the the likelihood of being hurt by a shark is super, super low and, but the capacity to eat you is what, I mean, that does exist with especially like the big sharks. They could, it's very unlikely, but that is what at the base of our brain, there's something I've seen big sharks underwater and there is something in the base of your sort of croc brain that goes, if that animal wanted to, It could, it it's so like you said, it's the awe of that power and everything. But then you have that. Then the facts are that it's not. It's very unlikely. But that is like to to get people through that fear. It it, to my point is like your education and you're showing that proximity and them teaching the respect of these amazing stewards of the ocean. You know, it's a lot to get over that that little crock fear like when you see a you know a five meter shark underwater you you know there's something in you that's like like you said you're focused you're aware you're like okay um you have to intellectualize through that i think
0: i think so or you just have to like unintellectualize intellectualize it and just be like commit you just got to jump in you know that's like with a lot of the big scary climbing expeditions or ocean conservation expeditions with different animals and things like that. Um, I really say yes, because like, I know there's great photo opportunities there. And like, I don't want to miss that life experience. And after the plane's booked and you're kind of, you're gonna go and experience it, you know? So you just get over that by committing before. Um, and then yeah, so much of it is to just like, my eye as like a photographer in the fact that like you do get that, you know, quote code that courage in times like that when like I'm just looking through the viewfinder and just trying to living in that world that I can be a lot unaware of my periphery and the fact that like I could or could not be in danger. Right. Um, I put a lot of trust in the world and then I a lot of focus in the photography.
1: Can I ask you about that in terms of the access? Because I know this is a, as people are listening, there are, I'm sure there are a lot of people are like Corey saying, I don't want to get in the water with sharks. There might be a lot of people who are are actually like, actually, that sounds amazing. You know, like I want to see these big animals. And I've heard, you know, like Chris and Paul, Chris Burkhardt and Paul Nicklin have these um, very friendly, but back and forth debates on access. Right. You mentioned shark diving, you mentioned, so, what's your take on that access to, you know, when we talk about these marine animals, there's, they're fragile They're You don't, you know, in the beaches in Hawaii, you know, they'll whistle you if you start going close to dolphins. Like how does somebody who's listening, who's like, I have all this respect. I would love to take pictures like you do. What do you say to somebody who's never done that, you know, that says, Oh, I want to do that.
0: It's always but fu- I mean access as far as like your what you're photographing is everything. You know like I always tell people and I get asked like how do I do what you do and I it's fine. Find scientists like that are going to take you there. Like find people doing interesting things and go offer to photograph them. Um. Like so go the,
1: through the scientific community. Yeah, because,
0: yeah, that's your access. So it's, so it's like, you, if you want to go photograph like great white sharks in South Africa, you could book a trip for five thousand dollars and go do that. Or you could just, You could do a little research online, find a university in South Africa, find a foundation that's right, that's funding that kind of work. Go through them. Go through that biologist. Offer to go on the trip. You know, mm-hmm. be smart about like. Knowing you know and also educating them on like the power of media and what it means to have that um, those assets like when I got back from you know when I left Fiji, I left you know every scientist on that trip got a thumb drive with all the media and they could just share it whatever, and that went so far and then raising money to come to to continue to work to going back and doing presentations and teaching their classes and 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 publishing papers um, that they'll realize that um, you know that's a crucial part of like the grant and the money that's allocated to their next expedition they should have someone there doing it and mm-hmm. those people doing interesting things are what are you going to give you access to those magical moments you know mm-hmm. but you' you're, you're there for a bigger purpose than just to a photograph the a shark like you're like helping um, these people that need the help to get these assets so they can in turn like do the work and they're the people that are going to invite you back. They're and what are I-
1: some of those, Andy? Like, I mean, you work so closely with, you know, what are some of the, the organizations that you're, you're lobbying with and doing the policy yeah. work with that people can support? Listeners can, you know, go and find out more, donate, like maybe just run through a few of those for the, for the folks at home.
0: So many, like, right now during quarantine, I've picked up um, I'm the creative director at Sea legacy and a new platform, we're launching Code Only One later in the summer. That's been kind of my at-home work. But, you know, I'm a senior fellow at C-Legacy. That's an organization that is founded by Paul and Christina and uh, that I believe in wholeheartedly, and that's using the power of storytelling um, to move the needle of ocean conservation, but also, like I said, that fundamental like like giving the media to the right people at the right time to run strategic campaigns um, and lift everyone else up around uh, um, around all these issues um, but I also work for like a big organization called Ocean X, um, which does like deep water submarine exploration, lots of foundations and universities and NGOs like um, but a lot of that is just literally calling all these organizations and calling universities and calling, like, people that have, you know, gotten grants to go do the work and getting on board the ship, you know? So now it's like, there's so many people that I know that are continuing that work and you're just becoming friends. It's like the climbing, it's like you become friends with the athletes, you know, and you develop a friendship and trust and then they'll, you know, they'll want to work with you forever
2: and uh, it's, like, it's like, it's like back to the beginning, start in the kitchen, you know, Yeah. start in the kitchen, you know, start doing dishes. That's what, and, and, and work your way up from there. Um, but I think that's such good advice to people that like, I, I try to, I, I just want to echo that approach things with purpose versus sort of that taking mentality where I just want to go create pictures for myself. There's something to that. I get that, but Um, And I never want to uh, shit on people's desire to make art. But I think what you're talking about is is volunteer your services to be in service of a larger calling to get access to those amazing images and places and pictures.
0: 100%. That's exactly right. And that is the journey. Yeah. That it's never been like no rarely ever does someone call me with a job to go like photograph sharks, It just doesn't work that way. It's like, I need to be in an ecosystem that's serving like the environment. Like my client is the ocean,
2: you know?
0: The huh. ocean of the body. So, you that's
2: know. it's an interesting.
0: You have to find that ecosystem of people and be part of that work. I mean, and it's fascinating. Like there's nothing more fast, like field time. And this is something I learned in Franz Joseph. Um, And David Quammen in the film we made spoke about it really great when he said some people admire astronauts or athletes or medical missionaries. Uh, I admire field biologists because the work they do is important and it's, it's fascinating and it's adventurous. You know, like these are some of the most adventurous, intelligent people on the planet and you get to tell their story, you know. And, the, and the, the, the big, beautiful, charismatic megafauna, of the bears and the, the whales and the sharks, that's, that's there, but it's the, the people you want to tell. You want to tell the story of that person. You want to raise that person up. Because um, the work they're doing is it's critical and so important.
2: Well, I mean, it's also important to realize that, you know, we are the consumers of stories, right? Humans are the consumers of stories. So the, you know, we have to make it somehow relatable. And while the pictures, to your point of megafauna and, uh, and the big, the big creatures that inspire so much uh, joy and wanderlust and, um, you know, sort of emotion, um, those, the stories about their conservation are rooted in human stories. So I think you know, it sounds to me like you're sort of advocating for the care of that. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it.
2: It's beyond, it's beyond the, it's beyond the animals in some ways. Um, so really quickly, I just, I, I want to ask one question about, um, just about your, your kids. And I feel like it's a good place to end in terms of, you know, you've entered, you've entered this new sort of chapter in life where, it was this massively exciting, you know, fast-paced, lots of travel, and there's still travel, of course. But um, and then it's and it's sort of transformed into this quieter existence right now, where your you say your evolution is is to be sort of a, an advocate or a, you know in, ingrained in the sort of the um, the machinations of policy. Does that help? um, bring you closer to your children or, and is there purpose that is tied to your children in that decision to be more on the front end of policy? Yeah. So you can, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, is it to be closer to them or is it for a better world or what is it?
0: It's for a better world. I mean, for them, and you know, for like all of humanity. I mean, I think like, I'm definitely at a point now where like, Um, it's, I want to give back, I want to teach, I want to speak, I want to empower, I want to protect all these things around me, you know, it's like, I mean, that's the thing about delving here as deep as I go on certain things, it's like, it doesn't take that long before, like, I mean, I've been inclined in most of the world's climbing areas. I dove and explored seas on all seven continents, I've seen photographed, you know, most of the species of sharks you can and whales i've seen a lot and not that much time you know and so um at a certain point you like the, the grand like your next step is to sort of educate and empower and conserve these things around you like i, I don't think um <laughs> there is another way i mean it's just like i'm led you go on a trail long enough Like, and it it will start to circle back behind you. And like, you'll start to look at like your footsteps and you'll see the footsteps you left. And like, it's important that there's a lot of meaning and purpose behind the work. And I think moving into the conservation, like particularly the policy work is, it is the way to sort of get things protected. And that is the level, that is the playing field uh, where your swings matter the most um and it's it's scary and it's it's you know it's a difficult place to to be and work but um but you can't let that stop you from like um doing doing it you know what i mean yeah
2: i get it and you get to be home a little bit more and teach kids about homesteading and farming which is cool
1: yeah, we didn't get we didn't
2: get into your garden. I, I wanted to
1: hear about that, but uh we'll maybe save that for the next one and the fall harvest or something. Yeah, um yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. Uh Andy, thanks so much, man. It's uh yeah. it's awesome to hear. I just I mean, I feel like we could probably go for at least another hour, but as Corey and I've said, we we'll, we once we're out of this whole thing, you know, we're going to do this like proper in this in the r- same room together and all that um which would be awesome but thanks so much for your time it's
2: great to have you on thanks guys yeah thanks brother we'll talk soon
0: i will
1: too
2: all right later